podcast. We are a church in Birmingham, Alabama, and our aim is to be a diverse family of believers living to make the real Jesus known in Birmingham and beyond. This sermon is part of our Advent 2022 series, Far As the Curse is Found. If you would like to find out more information about Emmanuel, visit our website at emmanuelbirmingham.com. Thank you for listening and Merry Christmas. Scripture reading for today comes from Prophet Isaiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall say and come, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord. It was um, joy-filled and fantastic, and hope you got more sleep than I did. Another story for another day. Um, But I hope you're able to pause and just remember the goodness and the kindness of the Lord towards you this last year. You know, I pray that we are a, a people of thanksgiving, not just set a, setting aside one day of thanksgiving, but many days to give thanks to our God for his kindness. But here we have one specific day once a year to actually meditate on God's goodness and his kindness to us. So I hope it was joy-filled for you. Um, I am thankful for you. <clears throat> you know, this last year for us as a family has been one of great transition. You know, we've been here now, golly, almost eight months, or no, 10 months. My goodness gracious. Um, But I'm so thankful for you and grateful to be your pastor. And God just demonstrates his kindness to me and my family through you. So often you don't even know. And I was telling somebody uh, the other day, most days you are the first thing on my mind and the last thing on my mind is I rise and go to bed uh, in a day. So I'm thankful for that. Um, Good thoughts of you. Um, So that's good. well, this morning, as you can see, is the first Sunday of our Advent season. This first candle we lit today, as Cody mentioned, is the hope candle, or what has sometimes been called the prophecy candle, because that's what you know, characterizes much Old Testament prophecy, is hope. You know, prophets were less concerned about foretelling, like predicting future events, although they did that a lot, but they were more concerned with foretelling. And what I mean by that is, Uh, uttering something given by divine revelation to cause us to remember something or to walk in light of something or to change or repent over something. Much Old Testament prophecy, a common refrain you see if you read through the prophets is they're calling for the people to repent, for judgment is coming. Repent for judgment is coming. But even in that declaration of repentance, it's laden with hope. 
hope that by repenting, by changing your mind, that then leads to a change in your life's direction, by repenting that God will take you back, so to speak. That he is a God who welcomes back the contrite and the lowly of heart. That he is willing to give you second and third and fourth and ten thousandth chances when you mess up and come back to him truly repentant. I mean, repentance is laden with hope. And that's what Advent is. It's what the Advent season is. It's a season of hope. You know, the word Advent uh, comes from the Latin word Adventus. It literally means coming or arrival. You know, in Rome at the time when the word really took root, it carried with it connotations of a royal glorious entry of an emperor into a city after a major military victory. Advent gives this picture of pomp and grandeur and fanfare. When the Adventists, the advent of a Roman victor took place, the, the entire city would turn out. They would shout their praise and adoration towards their champion, towards their victor. Advent makes us think, it makes us think of, of might and strength of a warrior coming into the city on the back of his steed, so to speak, with the spoils of war and triumph behind him. And it's also a word loaded with anticipation <clears throat> as well. You know, this leader has just secured victory and we're heading out to see him. We want to see him. We're anticipating seeing him. We're waiting for him to come. We can't wait to bask in the glory of the victor. So in anticipation of this great advent in Rome, you'd roll out all the stops. You would spare no expense. You know, it's almost like uh, in our day and age, two parents that are bringing home a baby from the hospital for the first time. And at their house are their friends and family getting everything ready. They're decorating. They're making the house fit to bring a baby home to. Everyone's excited, ready, anticipating, celebrating this grand advent, this grand arrival of this child. And so everybody getting ready has one eye on their task and one eye out the window. You know, just waiting for the arrival of this new addition to the family. You know, Advent's also a word that communicates the burden of waiting. You know, someone or something is coming and you're anticipating it with great joy and excitement, but it's not here yet. And as you're waiting, this is, this, there's this unfulfilled longing in your heart. This unfulfilled longing is undergirded by a hope that soon that longing would be satisfied. You know, your being is, is groaning underneath the weight of the waiting. And, and as time passes, as more and more time comes and goes, and you're still waiting, sometimes that waiting is coupled with pain, sometimes with loss, sometimes with grief. You know, the anticipation of the advent, the coming, the arrival, the hope of your waiting becomes fainter and fainter. Your anticipation has been replaced with disappointment, and that disappointment can sometimes be replaced even with unbelief as you slowly begin to wonder if the object of your waiting is even coming at all. And all of us at one time or another, we've experienced the pain of waiting for some form of advent to arrive. You know, maybe you're awaiting an advent right now. You know, maybe you're waiting for deliverance from some type of sin that just has you in bondage. 
Now, maybe you are waiting for a baby to grow your family that always seems to be just out of reach. Maybe you're single, you're waiting for a spouse, waiting for direction in your life. Maybe you're fighting some kind of illness or disease right now and you're waiting for the arrival of healing. Maybe you have people in your life right now who need Jesus. You pray for them every single day that he would show his grace and compassion to them and you're waiting for that salvation to arrive from God's hand. And the pain of continued elusiveness and the delay of the advent we long for feels heavier and heavier the longer the wait. You know, this is the nation of Israel towards the end of the Old Testament. The story of the people of God can uh, be best described as a slow descent from glory to groaning. You know, through disobedience and slavery and wandering in a desert and good kings and wicked kings and idol worship and then at the end of the Old Testament exile from their home. You know, this victorious anticipated advent of the Messiah that had been promised to come, it probably seemed to be fainter and fainter and further and further from their minds the longer the wait went on. I mean, just listen to the words here. Psalm 137, the psalmist, Psalm 137, he's writing this psalm from exile in Babylon. I want you to listen to these words. Just communicates this, this almost despair in a sense. He says, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept, and we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? And we just talked to First Peter about being elect exiles, right? We all have moments where we ask that question, how can I sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? The honest gut-wrenching plea from the writer of Psalm 137 sounds like words from one at the point of despair. A psalm from the pen of one desperate for God to act and fulfill the promises he had made through the prophets in the Old Testament. But we're not there yet in our Old Testament history when we come to our text for this morning, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. But rather, it seems when Isaiah speaks these words, that Israel and Judah, well, Judah in particular, is situated at this point in redemptive history during a time of great economic prosperity and power. King Isaiah, maybe you've heard that name before, Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees the Lord, it was in the year that King Uzziah died. But King Uzziah is very much alive right now. And he has been the king for 52 years in Judah. 52 years reigning in the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. And he had built Judah into a powerhouse. He built towers, high towers, and ships, and seaports. He established great wealth in the nation, you know, from every worldly perspective, every worldly gauge, Isaiah had succeeded in his kingship. But amidst all the worldly success for the nation of Judah at this time, Isaiah ultimately failed in bringing about spiritual revival and reform in the nation. Although he did some things well in the sight of God, you can read about it in 2 Chronicles, the people of Judah continued to offer sacrifices in what are called high places, these, these places of false worship that were established by people, honestly, for convenience, uh, but they were practiced, worship was practiced in these high places by foreign nations worshiping idols, 
where God had dictated that worship should take place in Jerusalem, at the temple. But he didn't bring them down. And at the end of the day, Isaiah's reign ended in failure and disgrace because he himself inappropriately offered a sacrifice, obtaining the role of priest when he was not a priest. In the temple, he offered a sacrifice and God judged his act by giving him leprosy. And he died alone. But it's here during this time of economic prosperity and power, undergirded by much pride, if you read the first few chapters in the book of Isaiah, that Isaiah speaks his oracle in Isaiah chapter 2. But it's interesting, and its placement here, given the situation of those in Judah at this time. I mean, this is a text about hope. It's a text about coming peace. But what did those living in Judah at this time actually need to hope for? I mean, they had everything they wanted. They had power, they had prestige, they had prosperity, they had stability, they had comfort. I mean, compared to where Israel and Judah had been in the past, this almost seems like the highest of highs. I mean, what is left to hope for when you have everything you want? But in the midst of the external prosperous situation, the people had forgotten God. They'd forgotten what it looked like to live according to God's ways in God's kingdom. Now, in the verses following our five for this morning, if you were to finish out chapter two and get into chapter three, the Lord is quick to point out that while acquiring their wealth and power over the last 52 years under the reign of Uzziah, they had neglected to be holy. They had unjustly oppressed the weak. They had sought power politically. They killed one another in various wars. An affliction from the Lord, loving discipline at the hand of the Lord, was coming their way for their sins. And through the prophets, God is posing the question to his people, where is your trust? Where's your hope? You know, in the economy of God, in his kingdom, and in his dealings with his people... His assurances always precede his afflictions. The promises from God always come before any punishment from God. That's why 2, 1 to 5 is positioned here before the remainder of chapters 2 and 3. God wants his people to look back to his promises and be reminded that even before affliction ever came, there was hope. There was hope. Hope that peace was coming, even in the middle of the discipline they were receiving for their sins. Now, before uh, we even begin unpacking this text, it's important to keep in mind just the nature of biblical prophecy. You know, the fulfillment of biblical prophecy usually comes in layers. You know, the whole metaphor of like it's peeling an onion, right? You just keep kind of peeling it back. You see all these layers, you get deeper and deeper, and you see all these things, you know, to this prophecy that was given. And what that looks like with biblical prophecy is oftentimes the word given by the prophet finds some form of partial fulfillment in the immediate context that it's given. But ultimately, the words of the prophet are awaiting some future form of fulfillment as well. So it's a both and. To use biblical language, it's an already and not yet. Already fulfilled, not yet fully fulfilled. Let me give you a couple of examples just to kind of give you something to chew on. 2 Samuel chapter 7, which I hope in our first and second Samuel sermon series coming up in the spring we can hit on this. But 2 Samuel chapter 7, Nathan the prophet 
goes to David, King David, and he speaks on behalf of the Lord and promises David that a son will sit on his throne and establish David's kingdom forever. Now, David's son, Solomon, partially fulfills this. I mean, he is David's son. He sits on the throne of David. He brings peace to the kingdom that they had not known before. He builds the temple. A lot of partial fulfillment here. But ultimately, this promise awaited future fulfillment. When Christ would come, another of David's descendants through whom God would establish an eternal kingdom. Ultimately, Jesus, the son of David, the king eternal. Or think even about Advent, what we're in right now, Advent. God's people, Cody hit on this a little earlier, God's people waited for the arrival of a Messiah for a couple thousand years. Messiah comes in Christ Jesus, a fulfillment of that waiting for redemption, for the penalty of our sins, bringing reconciliation and restoration to God. But here we find ourselves as God's people in a second advent, right? We are waiting once again for our Messiah to come back and deliver us, not from the penalty of sin, but from the presence and effects of our sins. They'll be fully done away with. So prophetic words find fulfillment in the immediate, but also sometimes in the future. It's an already, not yet So when we come to chapter 2 here of Isaiah, we have to be thinking in terms of already not yet. Already not yet. Already fulfilled in some ways, yet not finally and fully fulfilled in other ways. So we're seeking to answer two questions, all right, in light of that two questions when we come to our text. In a text primarily concerned about peace, the first question is how has peace already come? How has it already come? And then the second question, in what ways is peace coming in the days ahead? What kind of advent are we awaiting? Already, not yet. How has peace come? How how is peace coming? All right, those are our two questions. So after a brief superscription here in verse 1, telling us that this is the word of Isaiah to deliver to his people, the prophet says here in verses 2 and 3, I'm going to read it for us again. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 2. So come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The mountains were important places and religious practices of rival nations in the days of Israel and Judah. You know, places of worship and sacrifice were often established on mountains. I mentioned that already with the high places. Because mountains were seen in that day as the points where heaven and earth meet. So we want to establish a connecting point, so to speak, between heaven and earth. And these places of worship were literally on high places, on mountains and hills where the nations, they would come and worship. And God prohibited those places of worship, as I said before. You know, worship for God's people was to happen in Jerusalem, not like the other nations. But even the temple in Jerusalem rested upon a higher point in Jerusalem. That's why in the scriptures, when you see that they went up to Jerusalem, they went up to the temple. Even if they're coming south, it's still seen as going up because of the elevation, right? So Isaiah here is saying that there's coming a day when God will elevate his holy mountain. 
the mountain on which his house or his temple resides. He will elevate that mountain above all others and his mountain, the place where he will meet with his people, will stand supreme above all the others. Then all other mountains on which the nations hope to meet with their gods will look like molehills in comparison to his mountain. And it's to this holy mountain, this this place where God would meet with his people, that the nations would flow. It's like a reverse stream. Streams flow down from mountains. This stream would flow up to the mountains. It's a stream of the nations. I mean, think about this imagery here. You know, the prophets love to use word pictures to communicate truths. You have this mountain above all others, this dwelling place of God referred to as Zion there in verse 3, which side note, that word Zion in the scriptures, it's used to describe a variety of things. It kind of morphs as you move your way through the scriptures. You know, it's been used to describe Jerusalem or the Temple Mount or God's dwelling place, where by the end of the Old Testament into the New Testament, it refers to this end of days community where God would dwell with his people. And to this mountain are flowing people from all of these formerly idolatrous nations with false temples on false mountains, on false high places. And these people are coming to see the glory of the one true God on this superior mountain. And the nations are proceeding up this mountain to meet with the one true God in his dwelling place. And this imagery here, it's both exclusive and inclusive, right? I mean, you have one God upon his high and holy mountain. There is no other God. There is no rival left. He is the one God. They've been, all these other gods have been dwarfed and forgotten and abandoned by the people who once flocked to them. It's an exclusive claim, an exclusive word. All other gods false, one true God elevated above all the others. Yet at the same time, As exclusive as the worship of this one God is, it's experienced by all the nations. Not just one, not just Israel or Judah, but from all the nations of the earth. And these nations flowing up to worship God in his dwelling place, they're filled with messages of invitation. Come, come, let us. Sam, going, you come with me, going up the mountain, let us go and worship the one true God over all creation and all the nations. And the hearers of this message in Isaiah, the residents of the people of Judah, when they hear this message come from the lips of the prophet, it would have been both surprising and scandalous. For this was supposed to be the mission of God's people in the Old Testament. You know, one of the purposes of the temple in the Old Testament, the temple, the place where God resided, where where you'd come to worship, one of the reasons it was constructed with such precious stones and laden with gold and all these things, one of the reasons was to draw the nations to the glory of Israel. To draw the nations to the glory of the one who dwelled with his people. And the message that was to be on the lips of the people of God in the Old Testament was, come and see what the Lord has done. Come and see what God has done with his people in their midst. But here in Isaiah chapter 2, it's the nations who are saying, come and see. You know, the focus of Isaiah here is not on how Judah responds to the glorious presence of God in Zion. 
But his focus here is on the nations responding to the glorious presence of God in Zion. You know, while God's people are sitting in luxury and prosperity, forsaking the mission of God in the midst of their comforts and their pleasures, it's the nations who are heeding the invitation of God from his holy mountain and responding with joy and obedience, not God's people. It's the nations. You know, the nations fulfilling the mission God's people were intended to be on is actually here an indictment on God's people that they have abdicated their mission. That they have sat in ease and other people will take up their mission. And Isaiah goes on in his imagery here and he tells us why these nations are flowing to the mountain of God. He says they're coming for three reasons. One, to learn that he may teach us his ways. Two, to obey that they may walk in his paths. And three, they're coming to acquire that which cannot be acquired anywhere else. For it's out of Zion that the law goes forth. It's out of Jerusalem that the word of the Lord comes. In other words, we can't get the word of the Lord anywhere else. So we need to come acquire that which we cannot acquire elsewhere. Learn, obey, acquire what only God can give. You know, the nations recognize something the very nation of God did not, the very people of God did not, that hearing the word of the Lord and walking in obedience to that word was far more valuable than anything this world could offer. That no amount of prosperity in this life could even come close to attaining the words of life and hope and peace that come only from the mouth of God. And they're acting upon this belief and they're demonstrating the value of God's words in forsaking their false gods and seeking out the one God whose words are full of truth and life. And when the people of Judah hear the words of Isaiah the prophet, which, you know, spoiler alert, history has, history tells us, tradition tells us that Isaiah was eventually sawn in two in the nation of Israel. So you can imagine, based off the end of Isaiah, how they responded (laughs) to many of the words of Isaiah. But it would have been difficult for them to imagine a day when the nations would come to the Temple Mount, to the place where God resided. And for most of their interaction with surrounding nations, it consisted of war and bloodshed. It was also probably difficult not just to imagine it, but to even desire it as a person living in Judah. You know, most of the time, the people of God, if you read the Old Testament, they're not telling nations to come and see. They're holding swords saying, go away. So the arrival, the advent of this kind of radical peace that's described here in these verses, I mean, it would have been difficult to imagine for anybody in that day. But it's a peace God was promising to bring. And he explains it further in verse 4. Look at that with me. He, God, shall judge between the nations, shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. I mean, this is an amazing picture of promised peace coming from the hand of God himself. And you see a variety of things here. You see first, this picture of fulfilled justice. Justice. 
where God is sitting in his rightful place as judge. He is disseminating from his very hand just and wise decisions between peoples, people groups. I mean, you can't have true peace without justice, right? I mean, tensions and hostilities must be assuaged for peace to reign supreme. Wrongs must be made right for peace to reign. And then you have warriors here becoming farmers. I mean, swords and spears, instruments of devastation and destruction, instruments that would take life, literally instruments that would put people in the ground in death are being remade into plowshares and pruning hooks, instruments that would bring life from the ground. The land, rather than being soaked with the blood of war, And death will be cultivated to bring forth life. I mean, this picture even takes our minds back to the curse of God upon Adam, the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 3. You know, this sermon series is called Far as the Curse is Found. You know, it's a line from Joy to the World. We sang it. We didn't sing that verse, but that's okay. Um, But it's a very, it's it's a sad one, Um, kind of. But it says, no more, this is actually a happy one now that I think about it. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It's the beginning of God reversing the curse. You know, the ground once cursed to bring forth thorns and thistles will now be cultivated to bring forth life to the nations. It's amazing. It's an amazing picture of this coming peace of God. But has it come? I mean, let's think about our questions we talked about a couple of minutes ago and our categories, the already not yet categories. Has this kind of peace come? If so, and in what ways? If not, what are we waiting for? What advent is still to come? So has it come? Well, yes, It has, and no, it hasn't. I mean, let's think about it for a few minutes. Yes, Christ has inaugurated the kind of peace in his arrival in that first advent. In the incarnation, in God becoming flesh, Christ has begun the process of plowshare and pruning hook building. I mean, remember the story. Remember the story. Shepherds, we know this. Luke chapter 2, good Christmas story. Shepherds sending their flocks at night minding their own business on the side of that countryside, side of the countryside, uh, on the Israeli countryside, when an angel of the Lord appears, right? And this angel delivers a message. They're scared to death. He delivers a message. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that shall be for all people, all nations. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is good news for all peoples, all nations. For in the city of David, sometimes referred to in the scriptures, hello, as Mount Zion. The angel's about to show up right now. Um, I'm getting ready. We're ready. For in the city of David, sometimes referred to as Mount Zion, a Savior has been born. And the nations begin to flow to the mountain. Then a multitude of angels show up with this one angel. Skies alight with the glory of these angels. We know the story. And they all say together, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, right? Peace among those with whom he is pleased. And what is the shepherd's response? 
It's the same response in Isaiah 2. Come, let us go over to Jerusalem and see this thing that has happened. It's amazing. It's the beginning of the fulfillment of what Isaiah saw. And then this advent of peace to all nations. And if we're to keep going, which we don't have time, but if we keep going to the Magi, the wise men coming from the east, it's the nations coming to see the arrival, the advent of the Messiah who brings peace. The nations flowing to the mountain of the Lord. And this peace has been inaugurated by the gospel. The gospel does bring peace to the nations. It brings physical peace between nations. The gospel is able to tear down national walls of hostility that once existed and divided people from one another. I mean, you see this with Israelis and Palestinians. And I come from a church that was very missionally minded. And we would have every year a move conference. And we had a representative from Israel and a representative from Palestine come and sit and eat together the same table because of the gospel. They can now lay down their swords and spears and pick up pruning hooks and plowshares together because of the gospel. The blood of Christ, which saves us, is thicker than any physical blood that may flow through our veins. And Christ also brings spiritual peace to the nations. And we're no longer enemies of God. We are now friends of God. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. You know, because of our sins, we weren't just alienated from God, although that is true, but we were outright enemies of God. God was against us as his enemies. But now the gospel has reconciled us. And it's brought us peace Peace between what once were enemies, where now we are friends. We are sons and daughters of our God. That first advent, the first arrival Christ made, the first arrival of Christ made this kind of peace possible and available. Peace has already arrived. But at the same time, peace to some degree has not yet arrived. You know, it's not hard to see the reality of this truth. You know, to live within the tension of what has arrived and what has not yet arrived. You know, in our world this past year, we've been inundated with images and stories of war in Ukraine, of bloodshed, of loss, of violence. Some of those pictures and videos will just rip your heart out. And there's no end in sight right now to that war. Literally right now in China, literally pulled up CNN.com today on my computer. Protests are erupting all over the country right now for a variety of reasons in unprecedented ways. This tension is rising with questions of how the government is going to respond to these protests. And I would venture to say it won't be peaceful. Even our world's endless quest for justice in a world full of injustice tells us that peace is still elusive. And our world is waiting for peace. Or just think about our churches. Not only are many churches unfortunately filled with strife and turmoil, but the Great Commission still exists, right? It is still an active mission for the church until Christ returns. I mean, the command to take the gospel to all the nations, to baptize and to teach, 
is inundated with this reality that spiritual peace has not yet been found by people. Right? There's still nations that have not yet begun to ascend the mountain of the Lord. They need to hear the gospel. But let's even just keep it in this room. Many of us right now feel the inward groaning and the longing for peace in our own lives. Feel it all the time. That things are still not quite what they are intended to be. We're waiting for something. We're waiting for someone. We're waiting for God to grant peace in some area. I don't have to convince you that that full and final peace has yet to come. That we're awaiting the advent of that peace when Christ returns. So we wait. And in our waiting, we oftentimes groan. But in our groaning, we always hope. Put our trust in God's faithfulness. That just as Christ came once for our redemption, so too will he come again for our deliverance. His arrival is imminent. And we wait for it with hope. And in our moments of greatest desperation, when peace seems to be far off and unattainable, when the longing and the waiting and the groaning seem unbearable at times, it's in those moments where we look at one another and we have the invitation of verse 5 on our lips. O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk, church, in the light of Christ, the source of our hope. And in our times of glory and in our times of groaning, we hope and remind one another that he is coming for us, that he is coming for us. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes this life can feel heavy and hard, unbearable sometimes, confusing, foggy. I mean, there are times where we don't even know what to do. Christ, you have been called the Prince of Peace. And you bring peace into chaotic and tumultuous situations. You are the remedy for our strife with the Father. You are a remedy for confusion in this world. So, Lord, I pray you just remind us, use the means of your church to remind one another that Christ is coming back.
we wait. And we pray we don't have to wait long. But even if we wait for the return of our Savior, even in the waiting, Father, we are confident that you will fulfill your word. That whether Christ returns while we are breathing on this earth or he returns after we've taken our last breath, we wait the resurrection of our bodies. We wait for justice to be seen in all the earth. We wait with confidence and hope because you have never failed us before. Give us patience, oh God, patience and hope that we can cling to by the power of your spirit in the midst of our lamenting and our groaning. Thank you, Father, for the gospel. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.